morning. It's Sunday school time. So we are actually coming near the end of our series on how to read and study the Bible. Over the past few weeks, we have not only been talking about the process of interpretation, but we've been walking through that process, and we've been using the text of Revelation 3, 14 to 22. We're nearly done with this text. Today, we're going to finish synthesizing our interpretation of the text, complete the last step of the interpretation process, and then turn and discuss application. Not only what is the process of application, but how can we apply the verses that we've been studying in Revelation? Let's begin by rereading the section in Revelation. You can also open in your Bibles to this, this place. This Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. We've read this before, but it would be good to have this put back fresh in our minds. Here's the section we've been studying, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, before we go further, let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, I pray that you would bless the Sunday school this morning. Help me to be able to speak clearly, Lord, and just for the sake of time, help me to figure out if there's any, any part of this uh, lesson that I should skip or leave out. I pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom there, and, and I pray that you would open our hearts to understand and apply this passage, and that uh, you would give me the words to say. pray this in your name. Amen. As I mentioned, we have mostly completed our five-step process of interpretation. We started by completing the first step on this passage. What was that step? Remember, all these steps that we've been learning, they start with the letter C. What was the first thing we did to this passage? That's right, we were looking at the content. We were observing the passage, just seeing what's there. Then, in the second step, what did we do? Context. Very good. We start with the content. What does the passage actually say? Let's observe that. Then we go to the context. We're looking around the passage, especially for this one, what came before. And that told us a lot when we went to observe that section. That told us a lot more about how we can interpret this passage. 
So we look at the content, we look at the context. What was the third step that we did? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, Roy, he's, he's right on here. Comparison. We went to look at, yeah, there we go. Take those good notes. We went to the rest of the Bible. And how did we do that? How did we find relevant scriptures in other parts of the Bible? Because we wouldn't just have known them all. Yeah, Eric? What? Like what? Well, some of those books we actually want to wait a little bit later on to use. And we did actually access some of those last week. But in this step, yes, we're looking at the concordance. Or if you don't have a concordance, just go to BibleGateway.com. And you just type in the word. And we did that for certain words like hot and cold and rich and uh, beginning of creation or beginning. And we did that. And we were able to look at some other scriptures and get the full context of what that term or what that concept is in the Bible. And we discovered some very important things when it comes to riches. And we'll, talk, we'll review that a little bit later. So we looked at, or we did the comparison step. We were looking at the rest of the scriptures using concordances, using Bible Gateway. And then we also did a fourth step. What was the fourth step? Thank you, Roy. Yes, we did the culture step. And this is where we are getting back to some of those resources that Eric mentioned, that Bible atlas, the Bible dictionary, the Bible handbook, because we're trying to um, rediscover the culture and the historical situation at that time. And doing that made understanding this passage, hopefully, a lot clearer, because a lot of what Jesus says here is related to their historical situation. Now, we've only gone through these four steps, but as we've done so, you should have been able to, piece by piece, put together an interpretation in your mind. Because we want to be able to assert an interpretation on this passage. What is the true interpretation based on our work in those first four steps? I want to be able to say, what was the original writer communicating to his original audience? Why did he write it the way that he did? Why did he use those details? We want to be able to answer those questions by the fourth step. So just as we began to do at the end of the last session, let's now take this passage piece by piece and uh, interpret it. Say, what is he actually saying there? And why is he using the order and the details that he is using? Now we started this, so some of this will be a review. But let's go through the whole passage. First, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. From our observations in the context, we know that the introductory titles for Jesus are unique in the address he makes to each church. So why, to Laodicea, does he call himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness? We should be able to answer this question by this point. Why would he bring back, remember we studied the term amen, the idea that he's true and faithful and true witness. Why would he want to emphasize his trustworthy nature, his true nature for this church? 
Exactly right. Remember, this church, like the one in Sardis, had a false view of itself, or maybe a false view in front of other people. Sardis, he told them, I know you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. It is interesting that in his introductory um, description of himself to that church, he referred to his omniscience. Here, he's also referring to his knowledge, his true record, his trustworthy nature, because he's going to say something to them that will shock them. He says, you, um, you, you think this certain way about yourself, that everything is okay, you're rich, uh, you have no problems between you and God, but I'm here to tell you the opposite. But you can believe my record, because I'm the true witness. I'm the amen. So we can see that. What about that second phrase, the beginning of the creation of God? Why would he use that phrase to introduce himself to Laodicea? This might be a little bit more difficult, though we did discuss it last week. Ah, very good, right? He's emphasizing his, well, two things about himself. that He's the source of creation. You could say that he was the, chronologically, he was the beginning. He was the one that started it all, and he was there at the beginning. But he also is the preeminent one above all the creation. So in two ways, he is supreme. He dominates history, and creation. And what an important thing for this church to understand, because they were not fascinated with the creator, but with the creation. Additionally, when he offers motivation for them to repent, one of the things he says is, you can come with me on my throne. Because after all, I'm the preeminent one. So he's even saying that right in the very beginning. So we see this in verse 14. Let's move on a little further down to verse 15. Uh, I'll read a a few more verses and we'll talk about them. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Let's review something we mentioned last week. The description of hot, cold, and lukewarm is a reference to what historical reality in Laodicea? Greg. Very good. So this was not some uh, metaphor that Jesus pulls out of thin air. Whenever he says hot, cold, and lukewarm, referring to water, that would have pulled back into their minds the situation of their water and the situation of water in the nearby cities, in Colossae and Heropolis. So they had lukewarm, gross-tasting water. They did have water, but that was the only kind of water that they had in their city. Though Colossae had this great cold water, and Heropolis had this great hot water. But Jesus tells them that they're not cold, they're not hot, they are just like their water. He wants to spit them just like they would spit their water out of his mouth. So, let's pull together the analogy. What does it mean then to be cold or hot? 
If they're bringing back into their minds that there's this good cold water in one place, there's this good hot water somewhere else, but all we've got is this lukewarm water, what does that mean symbolically about Laodicea? Cheryl. Right, right. So we can see that these other types of water bring benefit, but the lukewarm water doesn't. So Jesus would then be saying, you're not actually bringing benefit, especially in relation to your deeds. You're not refreshing. You're not useful. You're not soothing. Whenever it comes to how you pursue your deeds, remember that first phrase, I know your deeds, and then he says that you are. Those deeds are revealing something about them. Their heart attitude is connected to their deeds, and he says, you're lukewarm. It's gross to me the way that you pursue your deeds. You're not pursuing them wholeheartedly. And when you do do them, it's with a half-hearted attitude. And it's not refreshing. Not refreshing to believers. It's not refreshing to me. When I'm looking for the glory of myself and your good deeds, I don't see it. I see something that's not neutral. It's actually the opposite. It's disgusting to me, and I reject it. So the difference then, just to reemphasize, between cold and hot and lukewarm is uh, what it does. Does it refresh? Is it useful? And we've all experienced this ourselves. When somebody does a good deed half-heartedly, we would rather that they didn't do it at all because we're not encouraged, we're not refreshed. Lukewarm, half-hearted deeds come from their heart condition. A lukewarm, divided heart These deeds, these impure deeds, were just a symptom of a deeper issue. What was the deeper problem in Laodicea? Their hearts are divided. They want to pursue God and something else. What's the other thing? Yes, wealth, right? Or we could say that they had fallen into what kind of ism? Materialism. That's exactly it. When they talk about, well, I'll say it this way. We saw in the comparison step, when it comes to wealth and prosperity, it can be dangerous if not handled correctly, if not handled carefully. Wealth can be part of God's blessing. And he's shown that even in the Old Testament. But, oh, and it's not sinful by itself. But they can cause one, as we saw, to become proud, to forget God, to stop seeking God, to stop thinking you need God. And instead, you run zealously to the security and pleasure that your wealth can provide. God had given great wealth to this city, as we saw also in the culture step. Laodicea was so wealthy that when an earthquake devastated them, they were able to rebuild the city without any help, without any help from Rome or or other cities. This is why, among other reasons, that they say that they have no needs. They They are rich, they become wealthy and have no needs. But Jesus says their situation is quite the opposite. They were actually in desperate need. What did they need? Emma. 
yeah, essentially, they needed Jesus. They needed, they needed true salvation because they had, they had wandered away from God. <clears throat> um, and they had no concept that this was actually their situation. And this is another problem with wealth and riches. As we noted, riches and wealth can blind us to our need for God and for Jesus because we wrongly assume, just as the Jews did, in the Old and New Testaments, that prosperity is a sign of what from God? Why would he bless you? Does he just bless people randomly? Certainly not, right? What's God's attitude towards you you if he wants to bless you? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, that if they were doing the right thing materially with wealth and their possessions, that that was a sign that God was blessing them. But if they had without, or if they were without, then that was God taking away his blessing. But why would God take away blessing from you? Right. So they have they would have a problem if they weren't being prosperous. But if they are being prosperous, does that mean that God approves? God has favor on them. God loves them. And we, we talked about some examples last week. That's why um, um, when Job's friends came to him, they said, you're obviously in sin because look at all these bad things that happened to you. Your prosperity left you because God has a problem with you. God doesn't have favor on you. God um, doesn't approve of you. And likely this is something in the mix of what they're thinking. They can't imagine that things could be problematic between them and God because look at how much God had blessed them. Look at how much prosperity he had given them. But actually, they needed God desperately. And it's, I find that this phrase, this next phrase that we're going to talk about, hits on that idea directly. Perhaps, um, because they were deluding themselves to think that everything was fine between them and God, the Laodiceans, actually, I didn't mention the phrase here. I'll talk about that just in a second. But I will say this. Perhaps they were deluded into thinking that everything was fine between them and God, so they stopped seeking Jesus earnestly, zealously, which caused them to stop seeking good deeds earnestly or zealously. It wasn't because they hated Jesus or denied Jesus outright. They just loved the worldly pleasures and comforts more. We could say that they just didn't have time for God. They were so busy making, securing and enjoying their wealth. And there's a lot of things that wealth can give you, right? You can think of a lot of fun things that you can do with your money, especially if you have a lot of it. So they were pursuing these things rather than pursuing God wholeheartedly, and that made their situation deadly serious. Let's talk about the next set of verses, but before I do that, questions or comments? So we're working our way through this passage, making sure that we understand what is being said, what is the real situation, and we've got a good idea of the beginning portion. Let's move on to verses 18 and 19. Jesus responds to their situation. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous 
and repent. Based on our study in the culture step, why does Jesus use these specific descriptions in his exhortation to the Laodiceans? Buy gold, buy clothes, buy eye salve from me. Sure. That's exactly right. These were descriptions drawn from their daily life. These were the famous industries in Laodicea. They were known as bankers, or as a banking center. It was a, um, a special place for buying wool, this special black wool that they produced there. And also they had a medical school famous for the development of this eye salve. So it's no accident that Jesus uses these descriptions. He's actually drawing attention to the things that they have all around them. <clears throat> And by, by using these things, he really emphasizes to them their extremely um, perilous situation and how deceived they are. He says, you think you have all these things, but you don't. You don't have them at all. You may have them in a temporal sense, but you're missing the true versions of these things. <clears throat> Let's ask a few more specific questions about some of these phrases. Why does Jesus describe the gold he has as refined by fire? I'll use that phrase. Eric. Yes. Yes. That's a great explanation there, Eric. I love having it, that, that mineral background. So he's saying that I've got the pure gold. Refined by fire means that it's been, had the purities removed, the impurities removed from it. The gold that you have is not like my gold. The gold that you're accumulating, the wealth that you have, it's, in essence, it's like fool's gold. You think you've got wealth, but you don't have the true wealth. I have the true wealth. If you want it, you've got to come to me. Let's, go, let's look at another phrase. In talking about their need for clothing, he says, you better get them so that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. What is Jesus talking about with that phrase? The shame of your nakedness? What is that about? Um, let's go back to Eric. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's another good explanation, Eric. So we're going back to some of the way that nakedness is talked about in the Bible. There's nothing sinful about being naked. A little baby that's naked, that doesn't make him any more sinful. But symbolically, nakedness is connected to the shame of sin. Even in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve first sinned, once they noticed they sinned, they noticed they were naked, and they wanted to cover themselves. So this became a metaphor for your need and my need for covering. We need our sins covered. We need them uh, forgiven. So you can imagine when Jesus says this to them, this again is one of those shocking statements because they, they are very um, 
concerned about clothing. They make clothes, they sell clothes, and if they're rich, they're probably wearing really nice clothes. They think they've got their clothing needs met. But he's actually saying, I'll tell you the truth, you aren't clothed at all. You are so naked. And this is a very bad thing, especially if that nakedness is going to be revealed. Now, that's actually another metaphor that appears in the Old Testament, and that's always connected with what concept? God's going to reveal your nakedness. That means what? Judy? Judgment. That's right. When God promised that to Israel or other, other uh, persons in the Old Testament, that always meant that he was going to judge. He was going to bring wrath. <clears throat> and uh, this is, I think, a very, I don't know if visceral is the right word, but a visceral image. Each of us can think of the terror and humiliation and vulnerability we'd feel if our physical nakedness were exposed, if everybody saw us naked. But how much more when God reveals what has been in our hearts before everyone to see and before his judgment seat? Every thought, every lust, every idol, everything that we've worshipped, every secret sin, he reveals it all. There is no hiding. The horror, the horror of such a scene So Jesus is saying this to them. You think you've got these great fashionable clothes. You look great. You're not ashamed. But I'm telling you truly, you are so completely naked. You've got nothing covering you. And if you don't get some clothes on, the time of revealing will come and there will be no place for you to hide from the judgment. Your horrifying, disgusting sin will be made plain to all before God. But Jesus says, I can clothe you. I can clothe you not in black, but in white. Remember, they're famous for their black wool, but Jesus says, I'll give you white garments. These are the most clean. These are the most pure. These are the most beautiful garments. And they will truly cover you, unlike your physical clothing, so that your shame and sin will never be remembered before God. So these descriptions, they are even more impactful because of how they draw on the daily life of the Laodiceans. As we've said, we could sum up each one of these metaphors Jesus isn't actually saying that they need some, some sort of spiritual gold or, or um, uh, spiritual clothing. Those are just metaphors to talk about their need for him. He has all of those things. But they really just need him himself. Really, they need to, as Emma was saying before, they need to, be, they need to come back to what is salvation. They need to come back to the good news that Jesus is your treasure and nothing else ought to be. That's the good news of salvation. And that is always what we need. Whether you are saved and ensnared in sin, or whether you're unsaved and serving sin as a slave, what you need, and what I need, is to repent and believe the gospel. That's what the Laodiceans needed. They needed to treasure Christ again, and not treasure what the world offers, even the blessings that they received from God. That wasn't to be their treasure. It was to be Jesus himself. If they don't get Jesus, if they don't come back and treasure him, if they don't get this gold, this eye salve, etc., what will happen to them? Meaning, what, what will then happen to them? That's exactly right. They'll be destroyed. The judgment, the destruction comes for them. 
If they don't get Jesus as their treasure, then they will not be saved, and they'll be destroyed in the judgment of hellfire. You may say, well, did they lose their salvation? I think actually uh, Michelle said it well. Christians can indeed sin for a time. Even a whole church can be dominated by sin for a time, but it doesn't last. If Christians refuse to come back and repent and believe the gospel, then they reveal that they never knew Jesus in the first place. He was never their treasure. And so there only remains the fearful expectation of judgment. This should be really impactful. Divided devotion to Jesus, whether it's to worldly pleasure or it's something else, is an extremely serious issue. It's a salvation issue. Horrifying judgment is promised to those who continue to serve God and something else. Because they're not serving God at all. Here's what I wanted to say before. Notice the verse at the end of this section. I guess that's verse uh, um, 19. Perhaps as a sobering corrective to their thinking as to how you experience God's love or know God's love for you, or maybe just as a a promise of an encouraging promise in the midst of this rebuke, Jesus tells them, you'll know you're receiving God's love and affection not by the prosperity you experience, but by what? Well, definitely faith is going to be um, involved. But what is it that you will experience that shows that God actually loves you? Eric? That's right. Reproof and discipline. You'll know that you're loved by God, that you have affection by God, if he reproves you, if he disciplines you, if he shows you your need for him. He doesn't let you get away from that. This should remind you of another verse in the Bible. The idea of love and discipline from God. You think of it? Danny. That's exactly right. You probably have heard this verse before. I'll just read Hebrews 12, 4 to 6. In his exhortation to the Hebrews, he says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And there's more about that. Uh, There's more explaining that concept in that passage in Hebrews, but we'll just read that part. The fact that God shows you your sin, or gives you circumstances in your life that show you your need to depend on him, is a great sign of God's love to you. If God only gave you pleasant circumstances, if he never confronted you over your wrongdoings, then he would not truly love you because he'd be letting you be satisfied in all the things that ultimately can't satisfy or save. He would be denying you the greatest gift, himself. Because God is the, the greatest treasure, the greatest gift. So if he lets you be satisfied in something else, then you haven't really felt his love. So this should should encourage us when we have the afflictions, when we have the things that we say, oh man, this is really hard. I have to go to God. That's a great mercy from God. And that's what Jesus is encouraging them with. God's love is shown not by letting you be satisfied by the world and its things. 
You might say, God, why can't I enjoy this? Why can't I just pursue this? He says, no, I love you too much. You are to only be satisfied in him. So Jesus, in light of his love and true affection, he calls on them to do what? Repent. Be zealous and repent. And really, oh, I should ask this question. Repenting involves the changing of their affections from what to what? That's right. The world and its treasures to God. They need to recapture their affection for God. And really, affection and feelings is a, a big part of this verse. Notice the language. Jesus says that he loves them, those whom he loves. And the word for love here, which is a surprise to me, I'm not sure if I shared it already, is the word phileo. That's that brotherly affection, that affectionate love. So those he has affection for, he reproves and disciplines. And he calls on them to be zealous. Now, what does it mean to be zealous? It's not a word we use that much. You're going to have a whole, yeah, to go at it wholeheartedly, you have a lot of feelings involved. When I looked up the the definition of this word, it, it means to have strong feelings for something or against something. So Jesus, by telling them to be zealous, he's saying, you should get those strong feelings back for me. Your affection should return for me. I have affection for you. I'm showing it to you. Have affection for me. Bring back that undivided affection for me and repent. We uh, we can't just do the works. We actually have to have a, a true affection for Jesus. And that's what's going to motivate good works. Truly good works. Not works that are impure or that are tainted by half-heartedness. I, whenever I think of this word zealous, perhaps, uh, especially in connection with good deeds, there's another verse that comes to mind from Titus. Titus 2.14 says, talking about Jesus, He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's how people display what they treasure. It's how they declare the value of what they treasure. If you want to be zealous, if you want to be encouraging, if you want to be refreshing in your good deeds, you have to have a zealous, undivided heart first full of true affection for Jesus. We'll look at the last section, but any questions or comments before we do? The last three verses. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says he stands at a door. Which door? It could be the door of your heart, Danny. Door of the church. These are definitely um, two possibilities here. It is a little hard to tell. It's worth noting that Jesus says that he will do what with them if they open the door? He'll come in and dine. He'll eat with them. He'll have a meal with them. And the word for dine here is the word denoting the evening meal, the time that's generally used for hospitality. Personally, 
I find it unlikely that this would refer to the church if hospitality is involved, because that usually would occur in someone's home. But either way, Jesus is making a promise here. I am knocking continually on your door, and if you open, guess what reward I will give you? Again, himself, right? Fellowship with him, just him. He will give he will give you intimate fellowship with the beginning of the creation of God. Recall the connection with fellowship, intimacy, and eating in the Bible. What is it that the apostles forbid that Christians do with false teachers and unrepentant brethren? You can't invite them into your homes. You can't eat with them. You're not to give them hospitality. You're not to eat with them. The implication is that you can't have close fellowship with these people. You don't want to identify with these people. You can't be intimate with them. And eating represents that close fellowship and intimacy. But Jesus promises that either again or for the first time, he will, if you repent, he will identify with and fellowship with you. And he will give you the treasure and pleasure that's greater than anything on earth himself. He offers an additional reward in verse 21. What reward is offered there? That's right. Rule. Or we could call this exaltation. Sitting on God's throne. Sitting on Jesus' throne. But note the description. How do we sit on that throne? With him. Right? I think, again, we're seeing the emphasis on that fellowship and intimacy. That's really the greater reward. Sitting on the throne is great, but sitting on the throne with Jesus is what's truly valuable. Because, again, Jesus is the treasure. These rewards, however, are only offered to those who do what? According to verse 21. Yes, the one who overcomes. Overcomes what? Well, they will overcome sin and death by, um, by the salvation offered through Jesus, but there are, there's something else that, they, that those persons will need to overcome, of course, by the, the strength and faith that Jesus provides. What will they need to overcome? That's right. The temptations. Even, that's right, that's right. They have to overcome the world overcome the temptations of the world, and even the temptations of prosperity. We might not think of it that way, right? But riches are a trial. They are a testing. They are a temptation. Now, when I say that, I can't help but think of um, the line from Fiddler on the Roof, where Tevye, he says something like, if riches are a curse, then may God smite me with it, and may I never recover. But he he actually misses the point. Yes, riches are a blessing, but they are also a temptation. They are a source of temptation. Really, poverty and riches, they're both testings. And we, we have to overcome that if we want the true reward. You actually have to overcome the trial. I think that's actually, it's actually true to say it that way, the trial of riches. 
So as proof of their exaltation will actually come, Jesus offers an example. He offers himself. He says, I overcame. I overcame the temptations, even the temptations for prosperity. And I sat down with my father on his throne. If you overcome, you will sit down with me on my throne. In this letter, um, then, we're seeing two types of motivation. And they're the same motivations used in the rest of those mini letters to the churches. It's also the same motivations used throughout the book of Revelation and the same motivations used throughout the scriptures. What does God use to motivate our obedience? Two things, generally. One we just looked at. Okay, that's definitely true. They are going to show us our need to depend on him. But to persevere through those trials, we have two motivations that, are, that should be motivating us. That's what I'm asking about. What is one of those? But why? <clears throat> what do we gain by doing that? Or what do we uh, not gain? That's right. There's reward, right? There's, there's an... Um, there's reward in, in showing gratefulness for what he did for us, just as you were talking about. And there's reward of himself. There's a, and of course, there are, there are some um, other rewards mixed in with that, but really it's the reward of himself. So it's the idea of reward. That's to motivate us. And also what? What's also to motivate us? Well, that's contained in the reward. In this letter, was he just saying, hey, if you repent, look at all these good things that will happen. He also says something else. If you don't repent, then here's what will happen. Judgment. Isn't that what, the, what Revelation is, is going to talk about continually? This is what happens when you don't repent. Here's the judgment coming on the whole world. But if you do repent, here's what you will receive. Ultimately, me. And even that appears to the rest of Revelation. You get to the latter chapters. It's all about the marriage of the bride with the lamb and their fellowship with him in the new Jerusalem. He wants to motivate us by those things. Don't be deceived by sin, by your own flesh. Look at the judgment that comes on that. Instead, listen to the true witness and look at the reward that comes with that. He wants us to be motivated by those things. One final note on the passage before we move on to something else. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That phrase, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, besides sounding like something from the gospel, the gospels, words from Jesus, what else sticks out to you about that phrase? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Greg. That's exactly right, right? It doesn't say, hear what the Spirit says to your church. It says, hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. I'm talking to multiple churches at once, and if you're one of those churches, you should listen to what I've said to the other churches. I think this is, this is valuable for us to see. Remember, this is not designed to be seven different letters, but a circular letter that would get passed on from place to place. So they would read about the other churches. 
<clears throat> and they certainly had things that they could learn from each other, right? Laodicea had a lot that it could learn from Smyrna, the poor but actually rich church, in Jesus' words. And we have a lot that we can learn from these churches as well, especially Laodicea. <clears throat> to sum up, the problem in this church, Laodicea, was not simply that they were lukewarm in deeds. That's just a symptom. The problem was what? Just to bring it back. They were trying to love Jesus at the same time as the world, the world and wealth and the pleasures that it, that it has. Divided devotion between God and stuff. They were living to enjoy themselves in the world, through the world, rather than enjoying themselves in Christ. Their desire for the world's pursuits and its pleasures short-circuited their desire for Jesus and good works. It's just as Jesus said in the Gospels, Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So, we've gone through the passage with our interpretation. What next? Do we turn to application at this point? Dwayne. Well, we have done some um, work comparing to the rest of the scriptures, so we have that covered, or we have done at least some of that, but there is another way that we want to see how we line up. Other interpretations, what we call the consultation step. We do want to take a moment to see how others have interpreted this passage and see if there's anything that they can offer, other evidence or uh, uh, an argument that shows that we missed something or um, there's something that we need to add. <clears throat> so we don't have too much time today. Um, so I'm only going to give one example of this. I used essentially two sources to, for consultation, for commentary. I have a uh, MacArthur commentary on Revelation, which is very similar to what you find in your MacArthur Study Bible. And this is from 1991. And I also looked at a sermon from John Piper on this passage that he preached in 1983. I recognize those aren't the most recent dates, so it's possible they may have changed their interpretations, but this still is going to be a helpful, these are helpful sources of consultation. When we look at these things, we shouldn't expect necessarily to find complete agreement or complete disagreement. We're going to find a little bit of a mixture. Without going through all the things that you can look at there, we do find agreement. We see that they, they note the same historical realities or uh, they describe the problem in, in Laodicea in a similar way. But there are some differences. And when we encounter those differences, what do we do? That's what I want to walk you through, at least in a tiny bit. So let's see what MacArthur and Piper say about lukewarm, hot, and cold. And I'm actually going to display what they, they, they said up here. Sorry if it's a little hard to read. I'll also read it out loud. First, let's hear what MacArthur has to say when it comes to the term lukewarm and Laodicea. Let me just make sure I get to the right slide. Okay, here's what he says about the term lukewarm. This is from MacArthur's commentary. Christ rebuked the church for being neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. His metaphorical language is drawn from Laodicea's water supply. Because it traveled several miles through an underground aqueduct before reaching the city, the water arrived foul, dirty, and tepid. 
It's not hot enough to relax and restore like the hot springs at Hierapolis, nor is it cold and refreshing like the stream of water at Colossae. Laodicea's lukewarm water was in a useless condition. Hot people are those who are spiritually alive and possess the fervency of a transformed life. The spiritually cold, on the other hand, are best understood as those who reject Christ. The gospel leaves them unmoved. It evokes in them no spiritual response. They have no interest in Christ, his word, or his church, and they make no pretense about it. They are not hypocrites. In describing these hypocrites, the lukewarm, he goes on to say, the lukewarm, smug, self-righteous hypocrites are far more difficult to reach with, with the gospel than cold-hearted rejectors. The latter may at least be shown that they are lost, but those who self-righteously think they are saved are often protective of their religious feelings and unwilling to recognize their real condition. They are not cold enough to feel the bitter sting of their sin. Consequently, there is no one further from the truth than the one who makes an idle profession but never experiences genuine saving faith. No one is harder to reach for Christ than a false Christian. Jesus' paralleling critique of the self-righteous, self-deceived Pharisees and Sadducees was that the tax collectors and prostitutes would get into the kingdom of God before them. And he's quoting from Matthew 21:31. Hmm. So some affirmation of what we interpreted, but also some difference. Let's see what Piper says before we make comment on this. <clears throat> I also pulled something from the Bible dictionary that we referenced earlier, the Holman Bible Dictionary, it has a little bit of an interpretation that it includes as part of its entry, and we'll refer to that as a third, um, third source. Here's what Piper says related to the idea of lukewarm. Uh, I'll quote him again. Speaking of Jesus, his indictment against the church is that they are half-hearted in their relation to him. They do not have the fervor and warmth and zeal of a true lover of Christ nor are they outright unbelievers who flatly reject Jesus and make no pretense of faith. They are halfway in between. Christ has a moderate influence on their lives. They are not uninfluenced by the Lord, but neither do they go overboard nor get very excited about the creator of all. We'll just stop right there. Hmm. One more source. This is from the Holman Bible Dictionary. Laodicea is best known today to readers of Revelation where Jesus criticized Laodicea using imagery drawn from its daily life. First, Jesus said Laodicea is neither cold, like the cold, pure waters of Colossae, nor hot, like the therapeutic hot springs of Hierapolis. Laodicea is lukewarm and provides neither refreshment for the spiritually weary nor healing for the spiritually sick. Despite their apparent spiritual uselessness, the Laodiceans were claiming a spiritual wealth equal to their material wealth. Okay, so we've got some different perspectives. Where do we, before we, we look at the disagreement, where do we see agreement between what we found and what MacArthur, Piper, and the Holman Dictionary present? Where do we see affirmation? Yeah, Rob. Yeah, we all see lukewarmness as a problem, and they all characterize it basically the same way that we did, that is half-heartedness. Where else do we see affirmation of things that we discovered in our study? Yeah, Khalif. Okay, hot is always good. Um, in the Holman and the MacArthur commentaries, we do see that a reference to the historical reality. What they understood it about Heropolis and Colossae, the cold and hot in those places. 
But there's also a pretty big difference, especially when it comes to MacArthur and Piper. What's the biggest difference between our interpretation and theirs? Greg. That's an interesting insight. Yeah, thanks for that, Greg. But certainly, we see from MacArthur and Piper that hot and cold are representing hot is righteous, cold is rejection of God. And so being lukewarm is to be somewhere in between. So these are two trusted teachers. And they, they do, especially MacArthur, he gives a little bit of an, an argument for why he interprets it that way. Should we change our interpretation? Do hot and cold represent righteous and unrighteousness rather than both of them representing a type of usefulness and refreshment. What do you think? Eric. Right. That's a good point, Eric. The way that Jesus speaks grammatically, he seems to indicate that both cold and hot are both good. And lukewarm is not good. So why would cold represent something that was negative? Other thoughts? Cheryl. Hmm. Hmm. Danny. So by your saying that, and I think, I think you're totally right to say we don't want to lose sight of deeds in all of this because that's what it's all connected to. With that being said, does that make the idea of cold representing bad or, or bad deeds, does that seem consistent to you? Okay. Okay. You said something that essentially is the crux of why MacArthur interprets it the way that he does. That while being a rejecter or being unrighteous is bad, it's not as bad as being a hypocrite, which is, which is what MacArthur interprets to be lukewarm. So in MacArthur's view, and I think Piper, without saying this explicitly, is going along with this, that 
The reason why he's able to say that both are good is that even though being cold is bad, it's not as bad as being lukewarm. Um, a thought, Shay. So this does relate, this, this alternative interpretation does make us really have to think, right? Which one are we, are we going to accept? We don't want to just say, well, godly men disagree and, and not, not, not come to any conclusion. That's not the way that, that God designed the scriptures to be understood. We do want to say there's one true interpretation. Where's the evidence? Um, I do want to give everybody the, the right to interpret this as, as they believe it's consistent with the Bible, but I will present one side as to what I think is the true interpretation. I think that we should not change our interpretation and that rather lukewarm is the only negative and that hot and cold, I mean lukewarm is the yeah, only negative and hot and cold are both positive. And let me give my reasons for this. <clears throat> I, think I'll, I think interpreting cold to represent something negative, even something not quite as negative as lukewarm, doesn't take the historical context into account that the Laodiceans would have been well aware of the sorry state of their own drinking water and the good state of both the water in Laodicea and Hierapolis. It wasn't that the cold water in Laodicea was, or I mean, I wrote Laodicea here, the cold water in Colossae. It wasn't that the cold water in Colossae was kind of bad. It was good. It was refreshing. So it seems strange that to use that metaphor with the Laodiceans as cold being negative, that's not the way that they would actually have understood the, Col the Colossian water. Jesus also says that he will spit the lukewarm water out of his mouth, implying that he would accept, he would drink the cold and hot water. But why would he drink cold rejection? Also, the image, or this is along with that, the image of, of the analogy here is that Jesus is seeking refreshment. He's seeking a drink, right? So how does the cold-hearted rejecter fill him with refreshment? And if one says that this is connected to deeds, how do rejected or how do the unrighteous deeds of someone refresh Jesus? One might say, as, as was brought up, well, at least they don't pretend to follow God. They're more aware of their true conditions. Hypocrites have pretense. So while the rejectors are bad, they're not as bad as the hypocrites. But I would like to ask this. Are obvious rebels really more palatable to God than secret rebels? MacArthur asserts it's more difficult for a self-righteous person to be saved because he thinks he's all right before God. He is self-righteous. But is not every rejecter of God self-righteous, whether he claims to be a Christian or not? Is not the atheist prodigal also self-righteous? Those who reject God obviously don't think they need him. For whatever reason, they are fine on their own. If this is true, then... The obvious rejecter is just as blind as the Christian hypocrite. 
They think the same thing. So why would God find one better than the other? Moreover, the idea that one type is more receptive to the message of salvation, I would argue, is merely subjective. Because without God, how close is anyone to salvation? I think we could all say that without God, it's impossible. doesn't matter if you're poor. doesn't matter if you're rich. doesn't matter if you're an obvious rejecter. doesn't matter if you're a self-righteous hypocrite. It's impossible. You can't see your need. You can't see your sin. You can't see Christ. You have to have God open your eyes through the word. He has to regenerate you. It is true that Jesus said the prostitutes and tax collectors would get in before the Pharisees, as MacArthur noted. But which prostitutes and tax collectors? Which ones would actually get into the kingdom? And why would they be forgiven? They had to do what first? They had to repent. But who granted them repentance? God did, right? They didn't generate that themselves. It had to be God who granted them repentance. So just because rejection is more outwardly obvious does not mean that someone more easily sees his need for God. Salvation remains impossible apart from God's mercy, both for the Pharisee and the prostitute. So, again, I would argue, how, or I would ask, how does being an obvious rejecter, how is that better than being a secret hypocrite? Outwardly they may look different, but inwardly they are the same. They are in the same need. They are both blind. Now, if you don't agree with that, that's totally fine. But I, I want to present the argument for, for why I'm interpreting and why I'm trying to lead us to this interpretation um, and, I, and again, I hope you, you are engaging with the, the evidence as, as I'm trying to. So, on a number of levels, levels, I believe that interpreting cold to be away from God and hot to be close to God is not consistent with the passage. It may seem intuitive with our modern reckoning of hot and cold to interpret this way. And thankfully, it does lead to an interpretation of the passage that is pretty similar to, to what we have. We still have the idea of half-heartedness, whether you interpret hot and cold to be something different. However, I think you miss part of the picture if you interpret cold to be negative because Jesus is looking for a refreshment. He's looking for something useful from the deeds, and he's not getting that. So again, I posit that we don't change our interpretation here, even though Piper and John MacArthur are trusted teachers because I don't believe the evidence supports their position. Now, this is a... Again, you may have a different opinion, but this is what we want to do when we encounter a different interpretation. We want to not simply accept it because, all right, well, MacArthur said it, so I'm just going to throw my interpretation out the window. Or we don't want to reject it and be like, I don't believe Piper. I trust my own stuff. No, we want to actually engage with their arguments and the evidence that they present and the evidence from the scriptures. Because we do need to change our interpretation sometimes. And sometimes we don't need to change interpretation. We want to be discerning. We want to be able to actually say, does what you interpret fit with the Bible or not? They do have valuable insights for us that we don't want to miss. We, I had more that I wanted to say today. I wanted to talk about application, but I guess we'll have to do that next time since we're already out of time. Certainly, the lake of fire is a, is a true place. Yes, the rejectors will, are destined for the lake of fire. And especially the, the lukewarm. We don't want to miss that. I do want to actually take some time to talk about the application of this passage, but we'll have to do that next week. If you have uh, questions or comments, 
Uh, again, you can see me afterwards. But let's close here for today. Next week, we've finished our interpretation process. Or, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, not next week. Next week is Thanksgiving Day. So two weeks from now is where we'll resume this Sunday school. So don't lose what we've been talking about from your heads. We will come back and talk about it and talk about how application looks. And also, what are the things that we do to avoid applying a passage? And also, before we, before we end this series, I also want to talk about errors of interpretation, errors that we want to avoid, pitfalls we want to avoid. Lord willing, we will get to that two weeks from now. Let's pray as we close. Holy Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it. Lord, we want to be careful with it, and I recognize that, Lord, even though I've done a, I've done a lot of study, I know that I'm not infallible. And Lord, even though we have been taught by great teachers, and, and we have gained an understanding of how to study. I pray that we would always remain teachable, that, that we'd be honest with, um, with the evidence, and, Lord, that we also be gracious. Lord, I pray that you would bless the rest of the service today and uh, be, be with the preaching of the word, that it would inform us with the true interpretation, and that we might be able to apply it. I pray this in your name. Amen.